So, you know, a note on the, on the uh, Friendsgiving, you know, th- Thanksgiving is a meal with the people that you have to have it with. Fr- Friendsgiving is the meal with the people that you want to have it with. And so I hope you join us on uh, November 13th. It's going to be a fun one. A um, couple things before we get into the sermon, though. Uh, first of all, uh, next Monday, not tomorrow, but a week from tomorrow, uh, is, is Halloween. And uh, I'm not sure of, uh, you know, all of your normal practices or your convictions that surround, uh, surround Halloween, but uh, pretty much every year, uh, we just offer up a, a thought uh, for you to consider as that day draws near. And, and, and part of the idea is this, when else does every person in your neighborhood knock on your door? You know, what, what other day of the year does, does that happen? And so over the years, we've just tried to invite ourselves. It's one of the reasons why we don't do like a trunk or treat here at church. Instead, we actually, we, we asked, what, what would it look like for us to be joyfully present in our homes on the day where all of our neighbors come knocking on, on our door? And so uh, that's the invitation, is to think creatively about what would it look like to, to bless my neighbors, to be a joyful presence uh, on that day. Uh, one of the ideas that's gotten some traction is buying full-size candy bars. Um, and you will become known as the house in your neighborhood that, that provides full-size candy bars. And uh, you'll, be, you'll be delighted at, at, at the, uh, the expressions on the kids' faces when they actually are like, I get this whole thing. Um, and it's, it's a pretty, my family's been doing it for a number of years and it's, it's a fun thing. Others do uh, cider or water for those who are uh, walking around, sometimes for the parents as well. Um, and so just think, what, what would it look like to be a creative, joyful presence uh, in, in my neighborhood? Now, if you don't live in a neighborhood, um, there are, you know, there are sojourners that live like on uh, downtown. And in downtown, man, those houses get slammed with hundreds of kids. So if you don't live in a neighborhood, you know, find a sojourner who lives in a neighborhood, maybe someone who lives downtown, and you know, combine forces. Buy, buy an extra uh, bag or box of, of candy um, or come help them, hand out uh, cider or water or whatever. Uh, but it is a way for us to actually love our neighborhood and to love our city. And so just uh, put that on your radar uh, as uh, we're, we're drawing, drawing close. The second thing I want to talk about before we get into the sermon um, is uh, something I've, reserved, I've received more, than, more, than, uh, more questions than normal uh, in, the, in the lead up to this. Um, if you've been around Sojourn for any, any period of time, you know that we do not do the sky is falling routine a lot around here. Uh, we, we do not... Uh, uh, chase after the cultural skirmishes that are happening out in the world. Um, you know, it's my opinion that the majority of what the cable news channels are talking about is not worth your time. Uh, it's certainly not worth getting uh, all worked up uh, about it. And so if you've been part of our church, you, you know that that is the case. Uh, however, th- there are some issues that are quite important to us uh, because we think that they are quite important to uh, the God of heaven. So like I said a second ago, I've received more, more questions than normal in the lead up to this, uh, the election, the, the ballot that we're going to, if you're a resident of Michigan, you're going to see a ballot uh, on November 8th. And there's one primary item on that ballot that's been producing most of the questions, and that is uh, Proposal 3. And um, if you are familiar with that, that is a, uh, it's a, uh, an amendment to the state constitution, and it's in regard to uh, the subject of, of abortion. So let me, let me say this before I say anything else. I would encourage you to actually read it. There, there is a website called Ballotpedia, like Wikipedia or Encyclopedia. It's called Ballotpedia. It is a neutral site. It just produces the information of what's on the ballot. You can go there and find the information on this, on this item and, and read it. 
And then don't just read one article out in the news. Read, read three or four. Read, read an article from, from both sides so that you actually have a, have a, a justified sense of what this, pro, this proposal is putting uh, in, in front of us. Um, so, you know, it's only, only then do you have an actually, uh, you know, can you make a personal informed decision. But I want to offer some, some thoughts about it from, uh, from my perspective and from our, our elders' perspective. So we, we believe, you know, ba- based on the Bible and based on science, that, that what is in the womb of a pregnant woman is a baby, that that is a, it's a life. And so because we believe that, we have a, a, a position or an opinion on abortion that is, that is a, a life in the womb, that life is a voiceless life, and in our current cultural moment, it's a life that needs others to stand up for its protection against abortion and any other danger as well. And so that is, you know, one of the saddest things that's ever happened is that abortion became a political issue. Uh, it's, it's just, a, it's a tragic, tragic turn of events. Uh, we, we don't see it first and foremost as a, as a political issue. We see it first and foremost as an issue of human dignity, as a, a value of, of human life. So that's the first thing. We believe based on the Bible and on science that, 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 that that's a baby in that womb. Secondly, uh, if Proposition 3, if it's passed, uh, it will make abortion notably more accessible in our state than it was 12 months ago before Roe v. Wade was overturned. Um, and so again, I'm, I'm encouraging you to, to go read it, to go, go see what's in there, but that will be one of the results of, of that, uh, if that if Prop 3 gets passed. Um, there's a lot of uh, vitriol, there's a lot of conversation going on about it. Um, the groups that are in favor of Prop 3 have raised $10 million uh, on this issue and spent almost all of it. Uh, the other side, if you're saying, well, they spent 10, what did the other side spend? The side that's opposed to it has, has raised about $400,000 and they've spent most of it. And so there's quite a bit of effort uh, in favor of Prop 3. Last thing here, uh, while Prop 3 might not be as confusing as some of the opposition says, it, it is too vague. And I, I'm, I'm not a legal you know, person, I'm not a, a constitutional scholar, uh, but when you read it, you, you will find out pretty quickly that it, it is too vague. So even if you were to say, hey, I think, you know, I think there's some, uh, some concerns that need to be addressed, I, I would encourage you that Prop 3 is not the way to address those. It's, it's, it's too vague and it's, it's, uh, it's not moving the ball uh, in, in the right direction. So again, I encourage you to read, read it and then read about it, um, but that is coming November 8th, and we want to encourage you as a church family to take, uh, to take this seriously, you know, to be an informed uh, citizen, and uh, when you go into the ballot box that you actually uh, have a sense of what, what you're voting on. There's a lot of other things, there's other proposals, there's other offices, and you, you make your decision on those things, uh, but Prop 3 does seem to rise to a, uh, a notable level, notable enough to, to mention it. Uh, here together. So please pray. Pray for, uh, pray for all of those moms that are pregnant. Pray for the dads. Um, pray for the babies uh, in the womb. Pray for our culture. Uh, a lot of times this ends up being a war that, we, that one side is just trying to win, uh, trying to move, move the, the, you know, the needle in the way that they want to, and it actually stops becoming about the actual uh, baby in, in the womb. And so uh, it, we thought it was important enough to take a moment and, and talk about it here together. So uh, we'll be praying for you, pray for each other uh, as we head to the ballot box in a couple weeks.
Okay, so today we are continuing our series on uh, our, our vision series, and we do this usually every fall. Usually we only take a couple weeks. This year we're taking a few more weeks, and uh, part of the reason for that is, uh, you know, we don't think we're going to forget what we're about as a church, but we do forget. It's easy to forget. It's, it's, it's throughout the Bible. God is constantly inviting his people to have feasts or to make memorials to, to remember uh, what he has done uh, on their behalf, what he is doing uh, on their behalf. And so uh, we take time each year to try to, to do that um, together. And we're going to try to tackle some of that uh, today. Now, if you were here last week, we started the series, but we also had a glitch of all glitches. And there is no video and there is no audio from last week. So did it really happen? You know, we don't, we don't know. But if you were here, you know. And, uh, and so we, we started our series last week, and I started with building blocks. And I was like, am I going to revisit the building blocks every week? And I wasn't sure if I was going to revisit them every week. But seeing that last week has no record, I thought I'd at least take a quick minute and r- run back through kind of the building blocks that, that we're using as a church to kind of orient ourselves in the world. So first, the first building block is the gospel, what, what God has done. We want to represent this every week. Uh, there, there's a, a, a short description. Uh, it's not perfect, but it's a good snapshot of like if you were answering the question, what is the gospel? And here it is. Through the person and work of Jesus Christ, God fully accomplishes salvation for us, rescuing us from judgment for sin into fellowship with him, and then restores the creation in which we can enjoy our new life together with him forever. And boy, if you believe that, this is the good news of the gospel. If you believe that, then the Bible says that you're scooped up into the arms of God, that you've been adopted into his family, that you've been made alive, you've been given uh, a new identity. And that leads right to the second building block, and that is actually our identity, who we are. So we start with what God has done, and then we begin to consider this reality of, okay, if we're in Christ, then who are we now? And we like to think of this identity as, as uh, being kind of described or uh, uh, being lived out in five different realms or five different ways. And those, those five identities, it's a couple weeks ago, I, I preached uh, and touched on all five of them. Uh, but the, the, five, the, the, the five words, worshiper, witness, family, servant, and steward. And these are key ways in which we understand how it is that we're following Jesus. And we think that those five uh, almost could function like, first of all, they're given to us. It's who we already are. So we live out of them. We're not trying to earn them. We live out of them. But then at the same time, they can kind of function like a diagnostic. Like you could actually ask yourself, like, how well am I living out my worshiper identity? Well, what are the things that a worshiper would do? If I'm a worshiper, what should my life look like? If I'm a witness, if I'm a servant, if I'm a steward, all, all of those things, and, and letting like kind of that overflow be a way in which you ask, how am I walking with Jesus? So what God has done, who we are, and then values, how we behave. And you could say that this is like the secret sauce. Uh, our values, we think of, we're trying to think of them as almost like the spices. Um, that, that gospel message, there's a lot of churches in Traverse City that love that gospel and preach that gospel and recognize that this is the good news about what God has done. A lot of churches in Traverse City would recognize these, these aspects of our identity on display and that, that God has made us into his people and we get to live that out in really notable ways. Our, our values, though, might be why, if you attend our church, you experience it slightly different than another church that you've attended. What, what, what is it that maybe Sojourn is putting an accent on uh, that is, uh, that's, that's making somewhat of a, a notable difference? Uh, remember, these are the building blocks, the gospel first, identity second, but then these values are kind of like the spice or the, the secret sauce uh, for, for how we're trying to, 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 to behave uh, in, in the world. 
And uh, when we looked for our values, we were invited to think of it as a treasure hunt. So just start looking around. What's already here? Don't, don't go get values that are aspirational. Uh, don't go get values that are like accidental or like super common. Like go for a treasure hunt. And what are the little gold nuggets that pop up in the life of, of this church? And so that's what we did. And the four that we landed on were wholeness, which is what I preached on last week, whether you believe that or not. Um, <clears throat> dependence, generosity, and curiosity. And so last week we did, we looked at wholeness. And just as a super quick recap, when we talk about wholeness, we're saying that we want to live to see, you know, live to see all things made new. We, we leaned into this word shalom, which is the Hebrew word that we often translate peace. And it means peace, but it means so much more than, than our version of peace. It, it means flourishing in every direction. It means that everything is right. And we believe that in the, at the end of the Bible, in the final two chapters, so the Bible starts off with shalom, Genesis 1 and 2, and that in the final two chapters, God keeps his promise that he's going to restore shalom to the world, that everything's going to work right. Every relationship's going to be right. Every system is going to work right. And so this, this, is, this is the reality of the gospel, that God created a perfect world. Sin came and broke that. It, called, it caused fragmentation. And the good work, uh, the, the glorious work of Jesus on our behalf is to restore that world, to, to make that world whole again. And if you've come to Christ, then you're now invited to participate in the project. God's putting it right project. We, we can't actually get that done. We, we can't complete that. Jesus is the only one that can complete that. But we want to be part of seeing it show up in places, little flashes of it here and there. I said last week, every time a miracle happens in the life of Jesus, I think it's an example of Jesus bringing wholeness, bringing his kingdom to bear in that one little spot. That person couldn't see before. That's brokenness. Jesus touches them. Now they can see. That's, that's bringing wholeness to that little spot right there. And, and we get to be part of when, when there's a hungry person and we feed them food. Like we're, we're bringing wholeness in that one little spot. When someone who is not, uh, who's not been brought to life through Christ, when they are made alive in the spirit, when they, when they come to faith, like that's, that's wholeness in that one little spot. And the promise is that one day, as we get to participate in the project, one day Jesus is going to come and do it to everything, the whole world, all of it. Such good news. Now, we gave a few examples of how we try to live out wholeness, and, uh, and I'm not going to try to get into those too much here, but just the, the, the sense of saying, man, we, we, we care about everything that God cares about. We're, we're not looking for balance. We're looking for fullness. We're looking for wholeness. It's not 50% of this, 50% of that. It's 100% of everything that God says is good for us. And we, we, we want to chase after that. Uh, and this is all going to culminate then on November 13th, our, our mission and strategy, which you could say is why we exist and what we do. So we're going to take the rest of our time here and look at our second value, uh, which is the value of dependence. So again, a value is how do we behave? Well, we, we are living aware of our need for God and others. Now, you might quickly realize that we live in a culture that has some pretty strong opinions about independence. Um, we live in a country that's kind of founded on uh, like independence. 
And if you read uh, sociological books, you you quickly find that we live in in a culture that is very, very independent, that is very committed to uh, like uh, the, the center, uh, themselves being in the center. And it's more true of me than I want to believe it is. It's more true of you than you want to believe it is. Uh, but we live in a society where independence, where being my, uh, an independent agent, being able to make my own decisions, being a, almost thinking of myself as self-sufficient is uh, something of a, of a cultural value. And I do want to be clear, like independence is not all bad. Uh, there are some challenges that our culture is, is facing right now, which is the result of people not carrying enough independence. Uh, maybe you've heard the name Jordan Peterson. And whether you like Jordan Peterson or hate Jordan Peterson, Jordan Peterson kind of exists because he's speaking to a group of people, mainly males, a lot of single males in their 20s and their 30s, who are trying to figure out what to do in the world. And, and they're, they're kind of like, you know, I think Jordan Peterson would say they're kind of stuck in their basement, living in their parents' basement. They're not, not quite sure what, what to do in the world. They haven't taken on personal responsibility. And Jordan Peterson is the phenomenon he is in part because he's actually speaking to a group of people who aren't sure how to take on the level of independence uh, that society needs a person to take on. So independence is not a terrible idea in and of itself, Think of Galatians chapter 6, if you're familiar with that passage. It's one of those passages that can seem like it's a contradiction. In Galatians chapter 6, in verse 2, it's Paul, and he's writing to this church that he's been deeply involved with, and he says to them, bear one another's burdens. That's what he says in verse 2, bear one another's burdens. And then just a couple verses later in verse 5, in verse 4, he says, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. And you're like, Paul, what's going on here? You just said bear each other's load, and now you're saying bear your own load. And, and at least my, 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 uh, the, the best interpretation of that that I've found is that what Paul is saying is that there is a certain load in the world that you should carry. You, you, you have a certain level of responsibility that you are, it's, it's like the normal load of being a human being in a family, in a society. There's a normal load. You should be willing and ready to carry that. That's how it works in a church, in a family, in a community. But some people are getting slammed. And the load that they're carrying is not the normal load. It's extreme. Health issues, financial issues, relational issues. Something has come into their orbit and made their burdens more notable. They're more significant. And so Paul is saying, look, I'm not telling you that you don't have to carry your own load. You need to carry your own load. that's, that's, That's par for the course. That's what you need to be doing. You need to provide, you need to, the, the, those basic things. But some people are getting slammed. And the people that are getting slammed, you need to have an eye for them too. And you need to help them carry their load. And I think that that's the way, part of the way, in which we want to think about dependence. That is, it is not saying that God never looks at us and says you have responsibility. It's not that God never looks at us and calls us to action, calls us to, to accomplish things, calls us to make decisions. Of, of course he does. But we do want to recognize that this seasoning of dependence, this this value of dependence is something that has made a world of difference in the way that we function as a church, in the way that we think about our relationship with the God of heaven. 
You know, I said if, if, if wholeness, if that value, if the primary trait was this sense of shalom or, or peace, and we kind of think of wholeness and we lean into peace, um, then, then when we think about dependence, we, we want to lean into love. And specifically, another uh, biblical language word, the Greek word agape. And this is self-sacrificing love. That, that agape love is this, this love where it's like you are willing to give up yourself for, for, the good of, for the good of others. And what the Bible would say is this, we need to love others like that, but listen, we need to be loved like that. We need to love like that, and we need to be loved like that. There, there's actually a passage in the Bible, there's many times where we are called to love like that, but there's a passage in 1 John that says the only reason that we ever love is because we were first loved. We, we only love because you have been loved first. Why do you love God? Because he loved you first. And this really helps us see our family identity, to recognize this sense in which if you have run to Christ and you have been, part of your identity is this reality of a family, that you've been now given a heavenly father. It's not just facts, it's a relationship. It's not just data or details, it's a relationship. You've been brought into a relationship with your heavenly father. You've been brought into the family. And there's this horizontal aspect to it where you have brothers and sisters. There's all kinds of people who have run to Christ and now they're part of the family. And so there's this agape love. There's this recognition that God has loved us like that in a self-sacrificing way. And now we love others like that. And that's the beauty of the message of the gospel. Let me show you this passage that was read just a moment ago by Sarah in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. And I want to look at this passage through the, through the lens of, of dependence. So look at verses 19 through 23, the, the bulk of the passage. That is pointing to the reality that we need God. That when we think about dependence, our first aspect of dependence is that we are dependent upon the God of heaven. In verses 19 through 25, uh, the, the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, how? By the blood of Jesus. By the blood of Jesus. Verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest, a priest's job is to bring the people to God. What is Jesus doing? He's bringing the people to God. He is the great high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed pure with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So there's this, this, this snapshot, and it's a, it's a gospel snapshot. And what the he, writer of Hebrews wants to start off with is, look, he, he says, therefore, bro brothers, listen, sisters, listen. Th this is the good news. By Jesus' work on your behalf, you can now have confidence. You, you, you can now stand sure, not because of all the stuff you've done, but because of what Jesus has done on your behalf, on what, on what has been done for you. And this is, this is such good news. It's such good news that we can actually put all of our hope, we can put all of our faith in this work that Jesus has done on our behalf. 
And if you say, man, that was 2,000 years ago. Like, I don't know. I wasn't around then. I'm not sure. 2,000 years is a long time. Jesus still has not returned. Is this something I really should depend on? Is this something I should really put my hope in, my faith in? Well, part of what the writer of Hebrews invites us into is at the end of verse 23, he's reminding us of the character of God, that he is faithful. You can put your dependence on the God of heaven because the God of heaven is dependable. He, he, is, he is faithful. And what he's done through Jesus, the first half has happened. Jesus has come and he lived the perfect life and then he went to the cross and he died in our place, gloriously rose again, conquering sin and Satan and death, all of our enemies. And the next part is yet to come, soon to come, where he returns and makes all things new. And so the, the, the writer of Hebrews wants us to see we have a dependable God and we can put all of our hope on him. We can, we can put all of our dependence on him. That what Jesus has won for us makes all the difference. 1 Peter 3.18 says that Jesus Christ suffered once, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. That, that, that's what he's doing And we are in desperate need of his work on our behalf. And so the writer of Hebrews doesn't want us to miss it. Our dependence, our need is for the God of heaven, what has happened for us in the work, person and work of of Jesus. We desperately need God to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. But you know what a rich understanding of this gospel does? Uh, It makes a direct line to our need for other people. You know, back, back in 2010... I remember saying to someone that the more, some of you know my story in 2009, I kind of had a, like a gospel wakeful moment where uh, the gospel kind of went from black and white to full color. And it was uh, one of the most significant seasons of, of my whole life. Uh, but in 2010, I was talking with someone and I said, you know, it seems to me that the more, the more I grab onto this gospel, the more it is telling me I need people. I, I, need, a, I need a community. I need people around me. And, and while I was too clueless to, to recognize all the times that the Bible was putting that on a silver platter right in front of me, here's a passage where that happens. These first few verses root us in the work of Jesus. It's by his blood. It's, it's him on our behalf. It's for us. All of this good news. And then in verse 24 and 25, he says, that, that, look, if you, if you want to really grab this, like you're going to need other people in your life to do it. This is not meant as a solo, a lone ranger adventure. That's not how this is designed to function. One of the reasons why I think the gospel points us to community is because you quickly realize that while this good news of Jesus having come to deal with the problem of sin and rescue me back to my father in heaven, I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one that God created I'm not the only one who sinned and rebelled against God. I'm not the only one who Jesus died for. I'm not the only one who responds to Christ in faith. And I'm not the only one that God is assembling as his people. He's not just saving individuals. He's saving a people. And so when you look at verses 24 and 25, it says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's a lot we could say about those couple verses, but let me just point to three things. First, stir up one another to love and good works. That, that word for stir, it actually means agitation. 
And like, yeah, you heard that right. You know, you might not have gotten into a community group this fall because you don't want agitation. And it's like, every time you've been in a small group is all you get is agitation. And you're like, I've had enough agitation for a lifetime. I don't need any more. But the writer of Hebrews is actually saying, look at what Jesus has done for you. Now he's brought you into this people. And part of what God's design is within the community of faith is that iron sharpens iron. That there's a a sandpaper effect that my rough edges are more obvious in community than when I'm trying to do this by myself. That I actually desperately need the people of God to create some level of agitation in my life, in my pursuit of Jesus. I need somebody to disrupt me. I need there to be some level of discomfort. And you know, when we think about our church family, one of the tragedies over the last two and a half years, over this season of COVID, is that the, 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 the political nature of churches, it's gotten exaggerated. That, that red churches got redder and blue churches got bluer and purple churches actually got smaller because people are not wanting to have their, their opinions pressed. P- people wanna go to a place where everything, everybody agrees with them. Listen, you should want a church that steps on your toes. You you should want a community group that steps on your toes. The person that annoys you like crazy might be the person that you desperately need. Maybe they're bringing agitation and you need it. And so the the writer of Hebrews says, stir one one another up, stir each other up to, to, to love and good deeds. We need to be challenged. Secondly, we also need to encourage one another. And this is like the other end of the spectrum. This is literally like give them a hug. This is like affirm them. This is like when you see something in their life, speak up. This is not one of my strong suits. It it does not come easy for me to see people do good things and affirm that. But boy, do we need it. I've experienced it. You've probably experienced it. When someone comes along and says, that was just, that was a good job. Like you did, that was beautiful what you did for that person. Like that means, that means the world. And God designed his people to come alongside each other and to affirm and to encourage, to help them as they navigate what can be a, a daunting life. And then third, meet. He says right in, in between these two, he says not forsaking the meeting of yourselves together. Don't, don't, don't miss the meeting of yourselves together. And that doesn't just mean Sundays, it means Sundays, but it means that your life is integrated with people, that you actually prioritize getting together with other Christians. That, that means there's proximity. You gotta be close to each other. And you know, we, 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 uh, we have been offering a live stream for 30 months now. Uh, we shut our live stream down uh, last summer, and as soon as we did, COVID numbers went back up, so we started our live stream back up. And I'm not sad that we have a live stream, but listen, a live stream is not, if you, it's not going to get the job done. You, you, you need proximity. You need to be with people. You, you need to be with people so that you can enjoy this stirring and this encouraging. It, it's, it's proximity. It's time. It takes time. You know this, every relationship you've got in your life, it, it, they, they don't happen by accident. They happen by prioritizing, by investing the time. And then it takes commitment. It means, you, you know, to say yes to the most important things means you need to say no to a lot of other things. And one of the things that happened over COVID is that our, our slates got cleaned. So many of our regular rhythms and habits got wiped out. 
And what, what happens when you have a void? It gets filled with other things. And I think it's a really important question that we ask ourselves in the fall of 2022. Has my schedule filled back up with the best things? Or has my schedule filled back up with stuff, but not the most important stuff? And the writer of Hebrews says, don't neglect the meeting of yourselves. You know, Pew Research recently came out with some, some uh, data, and they said that two, only two out of three regular church attenders have returned to church. That is one-third of regular church tenders that are missing from church attendance, from that regular rhythm of being with the people of God. You know, regular worship attendance, regular community group attendance, those things are worth fighting for. If you didn't get in a group this fall, look for an opportunity in January. Uh, these, are, these are the means by which God wants to refine you and to see you grow um, in, your, in, your, uh, in your need for him and your need for others. And, you know, maybe you say ch- church attendance doesn't matter very much. Well, there's, there's a pastor named Tony Evans, and this is what he said. He said, I hear people say, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And Tony Evans says, well, they're, they're absolutely right. Salvation is through faith alone in Christ alone. But you don't have to go home to be married either. Stay away long enough and your relationship will be affected. Now, that's not apples to apples, but you get his point. You, you get his point that it's like, yeah, you don't have to come to church to be a Christian. The gospel is scandalous and it's crazy. But what does the gospel do in us? It creates a recognition that I I first and foremost need the God of heaven to rescue me through his son, Jesus. And then that need is going to reveal itself in the fact that I recognize the role that God has for my brothers and sisters in my my walk of of faith. This is just three of like 40 one another's that are found in the New Testament. All of these little phrases where it's like all, they're, they're called the one another's and they're all of these invitations for the people of God to engage with each other so that we become more like Jesus. Now, one, one of the phrases um, that, that stuck out to us in regard to our need for God as our staff was thinking about this over the, over the last months was one of our favorite phrases at Sojourn and that is all you need is need. All you need is need, but most people don't have it. And the message of the gospel is you, you got to have need, you got to recognize how needy you are. The, the other phrase that stuck out more in the horizontal uh, level is lone wolves die. And our staff kind of thought that, that was a fun way to like, yeah, you know what? We need people. L- lone wolves die. We, we were not meant to try to chase after Jesus uh, all by ourselves. We, we need partners for the journey. We desperately need others in order to, f- and to faithfully follow, uh, follow Jesus. I tried to do this last week and we'll do it again. I'll try to move quickly through this, but just a couple examples of maybe ways that dependence shows up uh, at, in, our, in our church life. Well, first one would be in our preaching and our teaching. Um, p- part of that journey in my life in 2009 and 2010 was uh, a, a discovery of something called Christ-centered preaching or gospel-centered preaching. And uh, I had maybe, maybe heard about that at some point in my life, but if I did, I, I, I wasn't paying attention and I, I didn't catch... Uh, the reality of what Christ-centered preaching actually is. But one of the ways that you could describe what we're trying to do here is when we teach the Bible and when we preach sermons, we want to ask the question, was there anything distinctively Christian about what Matt just got up there and said? Like, could, could, it, could, it, could, a, could this have happened at, at, a, at a high school assembly? Could a rabbi have gotten up and preached that sermon and had no issues with it. 
You see, a lot of sermons end up being moralistic diatribes where it talks to you about a certain way of doing life, a certain way to, to live in your marriage or a certain way to manage your money or a certain way to, you know, to, to live a moral life. But a Christian sermon should be distinctively Christian. In other words, when we teach something, we actually think that what we teach should rise and fall on whether or not Jesus Christ is who he says he is. And so when we teach the Bible, and we, this is what we pray for when our students get together on Wednesdays and when our kids get together downstairs right now during this hour, is that, that Christ is made much of, that these sermons are distinctively Christian, that if Christ did not come, if Christ was not God, if he did not come and live a perfect life, die on the cross and rise again conquering sin, Satan, if that didn't happen, then the sermon is worthless. That, 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 that's Christ-centered preaching, and it's what we want to flavor the day. In other words, when you leave this auditorium, I don't want you to leave here with your hope being me, myself, and I. We, we want you to leave this auditorium with your hope being Christ. And you walk to your car and you say, if Christ didn't do what he said he did, then it's hopeless, it's empty. And so we want our teaching and our preaching to be saturated with this kind of dependence. Now, do we think that there's a response? Absolutely. Absolutely, we think that there's a way that Jesus has called us to live. But it's from, it's something that, that grows out of this reality of what Jesus has done for us. And so as we preach and as we teach, you know, we actually want to do it with like a John 15 kind of mentality. In John 15, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And we actually believe that that's true. Like that that's actually true. All you need is need. Uh, secondly, rest. And you could throw our, our church calendar in here as well. You know, the Bible, the Bible speaks of work in a really positive way. Uh, we, we were made to work. I hope that's not bad news for you. Um, but in, in Genesis 1 and 2, like work is really good. God, God, does, God created humans to work. And so we, we should love work. Work's been impacted by the fall. Work is not as enjoyable as it was originally designed to be. Uh, but work is spoken of very, very positively. It just needs to be in its proper context. You know, in those first two chapters of the Bible, here's, here's, the, here's the way it unfolds. That God created the world and what's described to us as on day six, God created mankind, Adam and Eve. So day six, God creates Adam and Eve. Anybody know what day seven was? Vacation day. Yeah, Let, let's get started with vacation. Let's, let's get started with rest. You, you could also look at the rhythm of those first two chapters, and you could see that it actually says evening and morning was the first day, was the second day. It started with night. That, that's the Jewish calendar. The Jewish calendar, the day starts at 6 p.m. You, you could make the case that the Jewish day starts with going to bed, starts with rest. And it's this invitation for us to actually recognize that we were created to work from our rest. That this, this sense of like actually valuing and understanding the goodness of rest. We have a culture where, yes, it, it's abused in both directions, underworking and, and overworking. But, you know, as we think about that idea of, of overworking, sometimes in the Christian story, there has been, uh, a, there's been, uh, we've been guilty of both. We've been guilty of being lazy on the, on, the, uh, on the mission of God. And we've been guilty of thinking that it all rests on us. And you see, one of the reasons why we do not need to overwork is because we are not actually the saviors of the world. We, 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 it's not on our shoulders to save the world. 
I mean, think about this. How dare we close our eyes and disengage for seven to eight hours every day? That's a third of your day. And you're just checking out? You know, when, if you read through the Psalms, the Psalms love the mornings. One of the reasons why they love the mornings is because they didn't know if they'd make it. it. It was a dangerous world. Am I going to survive the night? I don't know. I'm shutting my eyes. I am entirely vulnerable. And the only way that we can actually rest well is if we truly trust in God's provision for us. The, the story of the nation of Israel and, and manna, this, this bread that God provided for them every morning while they were in the desert. Do you know that God said, I want you to practice this day of rest. I want you to practice Sabbath. So on the day before the Sabbath, I'm gonna provide two days worth of food. Now here's the, 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 the controversy. If they took more than one day's worth of manna, it went bad. So when they had to take two days of manna, it was trusting that when they woke up on Sabbath, it wouldn't have gone bad. It was putting their well-being in God's hands, that God would actually provide for them. And this was the journey of Israel with God throughout. It was constantly putting themselves in God's hands. So many times when they are on the verge of a battle, God says, no, wait, I want you to do this, this worship ceremony or I want you to circumcise everybody, or I want you to take a three-day fe festival. And it's like, wait, what? Like, pause now? And it's this constant invitation to say, will you trust the God of heaven? Will you actually recognize that you can depend on him, that you can actually rest on his shoulders, that he has got you, that the good news here is not so much that Jesus has us, it's not, it's not so much that we have Jesus, it's that Jesus has us. You know, sometimes it's like, I can't let go of Jesus. Well, that, that's good, don't, don't let go of Jesus. But I got better news. He doesn't let go of you. This, this is the dependable reality that we're invited into, that we can actually put our work down, that we can actually have healthy rhythms, that we can get full nights of sleep, that we can actually take a day off, that we can actually take a vacation, that we can actually create space and to live out the design that God has given for humans. It's part of the way that we recognize that we are not self-sufficient. You, you need to sleep. You, you need to rest. You, you need a day off in the week. You need to recharge your, it, it's for the health of your soul, it's for the health of your body, but it is for the health of your soul. So for almost 10 years now, uh, our staff uh, here at Sojourn has been strongly encouraged to manage their work-life balance. It's something that we talked about quite a bit. Uh, we want it to be the normal practice of our staff to take at least one full day off uh, every single week. Uh, during that same time, that these last 10 years, we, we've committed to not pack our church calendar. Uh, so if you've ever wondered, like, why doesn't Sojourn have more programming? One of the reasons is this right here. We, we, we actually, we don't want you to be overburdened with, with, with programming. We, we actually think that we can, we, can, we can trust God with the rhythms of our life, and we, we, we're trying to offer things that we think are really important. And so we're offering less, but we're hopefully offering better. We've also been growing over the last few years to let the historic rhythms of the, of the liturgical calendar guide and direct us. It creates spaces where there's times where we're invited to be more in, 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 uh, invo involved in waiting, times where we're invited to be more involved in, in resting, Times we're invited to be more involved in repentance. It's a way in which we try to honor the fact that there's rhythms to life 
and we can actually trust God with our work. Now, just to be clear, because this has been confused sometimes, that doesn't mean that we walk around all the time and we're tired and we're weary. And as all we're trying to do is make it to Sabbath day. Oh, I'm so, I've, I've run myself into the ground and I'm so, no, like it, I actually think that Sabbath and work-life balance creates a world in which you're strong in which you actually are ready to navigate the world, that you're actually ready to respond to what God's put on your plate, that this this recognition of working from your rest actually makes you a competent servant of Christ in the world. And so it's, it's not like, woe is me, I can't wait for another break. No, it's like the break fuels me, the rest fuels me for the work of God in the world. Our, our prayer and my experience has been that this kind of dependence uh, on God, this willingness to recognize that I don't have to carry the weight of the world, it actually makes us stronger. It makes us more durable. It makes us more uh, steadfast. We actually can minister in God's strength instead of our own. You know, on the seventh day of creation, we're told that God finished his work and rested from all that he had done. Well, guess what? There's one other time in the Bible where we are told that God rested from his work, that he finished his work. You know, a couple thousand years after Moses wrote Genesis, he told us in Genesis chapter one and two that God finished his work. That same God actually took on a human body and he came to earth and his name was Jesus. And for three decades, he, he lived on this earth and lived a perfect life. The Bible says that he was here to be about the work that he came to do. And many people listened to him. Some believed what he had to say, uh, that he came to provide the only way to be restored to God. But then things started to turn sour. Uh, people started to, to hate Jesus, and eventually they killed him on the cross. Jesus, who had lived a perfect life, hung on a cross to die. And the Bible tells us that he was put on that cross in our place, in your place, in my place. See, because of sin, we should have paid the price, that Je- but Jesus did it for us. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. As he hung there, beaten and bleeding, He made a final statement, and he said, it is finished. And with those words, Jesus died. What what did Jesus mean by that? What did he mean, it is finished? Well, Jesus was making the greatest proclamation in all of history. Jesus is saying in that moment, I lived the life that you should have lived, and I've died the death that you deserve to die. All so that, you can now be welcomed into God's eternal rest, into God's family. You're not carrying the weight of the world anymore. You're not carrying the weight of your own rescue anymore. God's rest does not promise an end to life's hardships. It does not promise that it's gonna change your circumstances in this moment. But man, having the humility to trust God will change the way that you see everything else. The Bible refers to it as peace that passes understanding or joy inexpressible. You see, Jesus, his work brought for you true eternal rest. Will you come to him? You know, if you don't, your heart's always going to be striving. I I, I do like the idea that that we are created with a God-sized hole in our hearts. And until he fills that hole, we're going to be figuring out all kinds of ways to try to fill it. And it won't work. The invitation is to come. All you need is need. To throw yourself on, on, on the grace and goodness of the God of heaven. So as we come to the table, I want to invite you to consider Jesus' work, and it really was on your behalf that Jesus did it all for us. 
all for you, all for me. Now the invitation is to turn to him, to trust him, to receive his unconditional self-sacrificing love that can and will reconcile you to God. If you've had that, then man, this little meal right here makes all the sense in the world. It makes all the sense in the world if you've run to Christ. And so come up here and get it in just a moment. But if you haven't, if you haven't given yourself to Christ, if you haven't actually recognized that he is your greatest need and he, he can do for you what you could never do for yourself, if you haven't run to him in faith, then this meal actually doesn't make any sense. And so our invitation is don't come up here and get these elements. Stay in your seat and receive him. There's a few prayers on, on the screen that we invite you to consider just as tools to maybe converse with God. If our servers will please come, let's pray. God, thank you for uh, Hebrews chapter 10 and for this great declaration that Jesus, our great high priest, has brought us to you, has, has done for us through his blood, has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. God, we thank you for the invitation then to recognize that our brothers and sisters, right, many of them right here in this room, are partners for the journey, people that we need in our life, friction, people that are gonna stir us up to love and good works. And God, people that, that help us, that encourage us, that affirm us, that come alongside and to help us follow you uh, faithfully. God, we thank you for this bread and this cup, for the person and work of Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.